Our text for today is Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29, the message to Thyatira. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds, and your love, and faith, and service, service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than that at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star, and he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we continue our study in the book of Revelation, and... Uh, continue our study in the seven churches that Jesus addresses at the beginning of this, uh, this book of the Bible, this last book of the Bible. So Jesus is speaking to these seven churches. In doing so, we have concluded, and I believe rightly, that Jesus is speaking to individual churches, but based, because of the idea that it is seven churches and because the conclusion of each of these letters is here what the Spirit says to the churches, we conclude that not only is Jesus writing to an individual church at the end of the first century, in this case a church that is in Thyatira, but Jesus is writing to all the churches of all time. And so these letters that Jesus is uh, revealing through John they are not just something that we are to look back at and say, oh, that was applicable to a church back at the end of the first century or perhaps early into the second century. And this is a nice history lesson to learn what is going on. But I believe the message is that we are to take what Jesus is saying to this church from the first century and make sure that we are not guilty of the same things and perhaps also to make sure that we are doing the very things that Jesus commends the church for. Because remember, Jesus commends the church for certain things. We should take a lesson and say, are we doing that? Likewise, we should look at what does Jesus rebuke the churches for and say, are we doing that too? And if so, follow Jesus' uh, instruction and repent. So, Jesus is speaking to us today in these letters. The message to the church in Thyatira is, is somewhat interesting in the sense that it seems to be kind of the anti-Ephesus, if you will. It is almost opposite of the, book of, or the letter to Ephesus. You'll recall that the very first letter, the letter to the to church in Ephesus, this was a group that was doctrinally precise. They were doctrinally sound. They were theologically um, orthodox. And they tolerated no false teaching in their church. When false teachers arose, they got rid of them quickly. And Jesus commended them for this. But his word, but I have this against you, that you lost your first love. And the way we understood that really was that they, they had lost their love uh, their love for God and their love for others, the two great commandments. Well, Thyatira seems to be a fairly loving church, but tolerant of those who would teach fallacy and 
teach things that would not align with God's revealed word. And so let me just maybe give you a little bit of background on this church or the city of Thyatira. We, I think it's important that we have a little bit of historical background on, on some of these churches. And the reason being is because the way Jesus speaks to them and the way Jesus reveals himself to these churches is, uh, is relevant to what is going on in those particular cities. And so Thyatira, I'm sorry, this map is so small, I thought it was bigger, but here's the island of Patmos. This is western Turkey or Asia Minor. Down here is kind of Israel and Italy or Rome's over in this area. Um, so here's Patmos, and this is the little island that John's exiled on. And he wrote a letter here to Ephesus and to Smyrna and Pergamum. And here's Thyatira, kind of inland a little bit. And... Um, Interestingly enough, Thyatira is probably the least known, least remarkable, and least important of the seven cities that uh, the seven letters are addressed to. It is a city that was often occupied by, by foreign armies, not necessarily conquered. Basically what it was, it's in a broad valley, and so when armies were marching to conquer an important city, they would pass through Thyatira, and so they would end up, well, there's a city, this is where we're going to eat and drink and lodge and all of this stuff, and we'll kind of hang out there as we're going on to a campaign to take over some, something important. Thyatira's kind of a stopping off point. Um, and so Thyatira was often occupied by various armies. Thyatira, unlike the other three, cities that we have looked at was really not known for wasn't really distinguished in its culture or even in its wealth I mean, after all of these other cities seemed to have something that really stood out perhaps it was something ungodly, like some of them were really really known for emperor worship that was a big issue in pretty much all of the cities we've looked at was in some way they, they had adopted emperor worship or they were known for various deities or they were known for various like Ephesus was really known for um, the worship of Artemis and of course we see that in the book of Acts and if you came against Artemis well you had problems and basically it's not so much that you came against Artemis but you came against the wealth that um, Trade in Artemis paraphernalia came, you know, came with it. So Thyatira just—they had plenty of deities, but they weren't really well known for that. They weren't known for emperor worship. It was home to many industries, however. It was kind of a, a working-class town, perhaps. Um, it was known that there were industries such as bakeries, uh, painting. Um, potters, copper was a was a pretty prominent industry in Thyatira. Now, if you've been listening to our to our messages, if you've been here, you'll realize that along with the industry comes trade guilds, right? So if there's a copper industry or if there is a, a, uh, a pottery industry or some other industry, there would have been a trade guild associated with that industry. You're saying, well, so what? Well, along with the trade guild also came with it some sort of pagan god that would be the patron god of that particular industry. And if you were to make a living, say, as a coppersmith, you would need to be part of the trade guild. Perhaps it is much like a, today, like a union. Now, Arizona is not a real strong union state, but, and so I'm not real familiar with unions, but some of the people I've spoken with who live in areas where there are really strong unions, if you're a carpenter, if you don't belong to the carpenter's union, you're probably not going to do a lot of work. Because if you're going to go out and bid, First of all, you probably you need to be part of the union. If you're not, the person who gives you that job is going to hear loudly from the carpenters' union and put pressure on them not to hire you. 
right? So, kind of along those lines, and if you're not part of this trade guild, and you're a coppersmith, or you're a potter, it's going to be very difficult for you to ply your trade and to make money. So you have to be part of the, the trade guild. Well, in order to be part of the trade guild would, would then require that you participate in some of their festivities and activities which included the worship of their pagan god. So this put pressure on Christians because it's like, well, I don't know if I'm able to go and be part of this trade guild because it's going to require that I participate in pagan worship. And that I'm unwilling to do. And so, we have these trade guilds that support, that, that would support the industries. One of the interesting things about Thyatira, as you read in the book of Acts, that Lydia, remember the, the, the woman who was the seller of purple fabrics? She was from Thyatira, so it's quite possible that Thyatira had a, a garden district or a dyeing um, the ability to dye fabrics. It's also interesting that Thyatira is the longest of the seven letters. And I will say that it is most likely the most difficult to interpret of the seven letters. It's, I was talking with Margie Scott last week, and we were talking a little bit about the book of Revelation. And... Um, well, right now, it's not really too difficult. These seven churches, it's not real controversial or too difficult to, to interpret or to deal with. Now, when we get to chapter 4 and 5 and 13 and on, it's a little more trying, a little more challenging. But these first seven letters, from an interpretive standpoint, are not real difficult. Thyatira proposes a few problems for us and a few challenges, and we'll go through them. And then, of course, on Wednesday, we... Hopefully, can address them uh, with greater detail. But it is the longest of the seven letters. So let's look, because the passage opens up, as does all of the seven letters that is sent to the angel of the church in Thyatira. And then there is this portrait, this self portrait. Jesus basically identifies himself and ascribes to himself certain characteristics. And these characteristics are important because they're going to be relevant to that particular church. And so Jesus begins with, right, the Son of God. Then a lot of thoughts as to why he introduces himself as the Son of God in this particular passage. And many people have drawn from Daniel chapter 3 and Daniel chapter 7. Uh, and in Daniel chapter 3, where the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the, the fire, and you'll recall that um, the witnesses to this said, I saw a fourth person in there, one like the Son of God. Some people have thought that perhaps it's a reference to Daniel because we know that John loves to refer back to Daniel. But I think it's a reference to Psalm chapter 2 for a couple of reasons. And in Psalm chapter 2, basically we see that it is the Son of God. In Psalm chapter 2, it is the Son of God who is going to reign over the nations. It is the Son of God who is going to rule over the nations. And we see later on in the promise of, to Thyatira a direct quote from Psalm chapter 2. So I think that Jesus is describing himself as the Son of God who will rule over the nations to who is Lord of lords and King of kings and who is the exalted one and who is the rightful Davidic king who has all rule and all authority. And so he begins his letter with the Son of God the one who reigns over the nations. I believe it is also an attack against Caesar because oftentimes um, we have many, many manuscripts and writings where the Caesars would refer to themselves as the Son of God. And so this is an attack, or fancy word, a polemic against the Roman civil government that Caesar is not the rightful Son of God, Jesus, of the rightful Davidic line, is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He does rule over, he even rules over Caesar. 
Whichever Caesar, it doesn't matter. Caesar, Tiberius, Augustus, Nero, Domitian, it just doesn't matter. Jesus is Lord. And he is the king, not Caesar. This is important to a church such as Thyatira. We all, that's important to the church on Ramble Place. We need to know who rules over this earth. And remember, the book of Revelation is just that. It's an unveiling. It's a pulling back. It is so that we are able to see things as they really are. And it's very... It is not unusual for us to think that somehow... that the governing authorities are the true governing authorities. The true governing authority over this world is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And He rules and He reigns. He then describes Himself as having eyes like a flame of fire. I think this will become important as we look through this text because He sees even the secret things. There is nothing that escapes His blazing gaze. And he is known as the one who has feet like burnished bronze. This is really interesting here, and there are a couple of interesting ideas. One of them I won't share with you until Wednesday. (laughs) But probably the idea of burnished bronze here really has to do with purity. And the reason being is because the coppersmiths would have understood this idea of burnished bronze because they would they would smelt and and and, and they would bring up the they would light a fire under the material and under the ore until the impurities come to the top and then they scoop them off and the burnished bronze is that finished bronze that is pure, it is without alloy, it is unmixed, it is completely free from any pollution whatsoever, and so Jesus having feet as burnished bronze is the one who is pure and without alloy, and who is without any pollution whatsoever, and so Jesus, the rightful ruler, the Son of God, who rules over all things, who sees even that which goes on in secret, who has Uh, knowledge of all things and who is utterly and completely without pollution. This is the one who is speaking to the church on Thyatira and this is the one who speaks to the church on Randall Place and this is the one who speaks to you and who speaks to me. And so he speaks this this message to the people of Thyatira. I know your deeds and your love and your faith and your servants and, and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. Now let me just give you a, a brief little grammar lesson of what's going on here. Please don't get too bored with my grammar lesson, but I think it's, it's interesting and fairly important because I, how I understand the language here is I know your deeds. That's the umbrella statement. I know your deeds. And then Jesus describes what those deeds are. Those deeds are described with two pairs, two couplets, if you will. I know your deeds. There's the umbrella statement. Your deeds are faith and service. That's your first couplet, or your first pair. I'm sorry. Love and faith is your first couplet, your first pair. Service and perseverance is your second couplet or your second pair. I know your deeds. What are the deeds? Your deeds come in two senses, love and faith, and the second sense, service and perseverance. I think it's interesting that John gives us this pair of couplets. Love and faith, service and perseverance. Here's how I would understand these couplets. That love in the first category produces service. And faith produces perseverance. You love one another. You love your neighbor as yourself. As a result, you serve one another. Folks, Love is expressed in what it does. 
Sometimes we fail in thinking that love is simply emotion or sweaty palms or a rapid heartbeat or something in our, our butterflies in our stomach. And perhaps that is an expression of love, but love expresses itself in the way it treats other people. Love is expressed by doing. In fact, until you express, unless, until your love is expressed in what you do, it remains unexpressed. Maybe it's just simply the words, I love you, but it's still an action. And I love you needs to be followed up with something that you do. Certainly, we see this most clearly in John 3.16, don't we? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Alright, it's not like God so loved the world and had warm feelings towards you. God so loved the world that He actually took action and expressed His love in giving His one and only Son that all who would believe in Him would have eternal life and would not perish. Love is expressed in service. It's expressed in outward manifestation. And faith is expressed in, in perseverance. I believe. I believe that Jesus is Lord. Do you believe that Jesus is Lord when the whole world is saying He's not? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Even when the world says you're crazy to Believe in something like that. Will you believe? And will you persevere in that belief? And so, I know your deeds. Now I know your deeds, your, your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance. And that these are growing. That your deeds of late are greater than at first. This is a growing church. I don't know if it's growing in number. But it's certainly growing in Christ-like qualities. At this point, this is a pretty good church. I wouldn't mind being part of this church. Somebody who's actually out there, man, seeing needs, seeing those who are poor, seeing the widows, seeing those who are struggling, and taking care of those needs, and standing firm when other people say, oh, you're crazy to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that they're holding fast to it. Perhaps it might be, this might be an interesting time to take an inventory of the things that Jesus has commended the four churches for so far. Because once we get through them, I'll go back and do a total inventory of all the seven churches. But just for right now, let's look at what has Jesus commended his churches for, and perhaps we can look to see how are we doing. First of all, he commends Ephesus for their doctrinal purity and their theological precision. He commends them. Way to go. I'm glad that you are theologically sound and doctrinally precise. I commend you for that. You need, as a church, a church needs to be theologically sound. In Smyrna, he praised them for their suffering for the sake of righteousness. Notice they weren't suffering because they actually did something wrong. They were suffering because they were righteous. And he commends them for that. In Pergamum, these were people who resisted the influence of culture and stood firm in the things of the Lord. And here in Thyatira, their growth in Christ-like character. I know your deeds, Jesus says, and he commends them. But I have this against you. And as is the case with most of the letters, most of the seven letters, after the commendation comes some sort of a rebuke. I know that you're doing this, and I commend you for it. Way to go. However, I have this against you, and this is what he has against this church. That you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols, I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. I have this against you. You tolerate Jezebel. She calls herself a prophetess. She's seducing my servants, and she's unrepentant. 
So here's what we know about this individual at the church of Thyatira. Probably an individual. Some people said it could have been a group, but I won't nitpick there. For this message, we will refer to this as an individual. Calls herself a prophetess, number one. She claims prophetic words from God. That she has some sort of personal communication to the throne of heaven, which then she communicates to the church. I have this against you, that you tolerate this woman who claims to have a direct line to me. However, she doesn't teach godliness, she teaches her, she teaches my servants to practice immorality and idolatry. The next thing we know is that she's unrepentant. That's what we know about whatever this person Thyatira is teaching. They claim to be a prophet of God. They claim, um, but, but they can't be because they're teaching wrong things and they will not repent. This is an unrepentant false teacher. So, why does Jesus refer to this individual as Jezebel? Well, if you are new to Scripture, you may have heard that term, but Jezebel has a very strong Old Testament antecedent here. She is a strong, she is a, a figure who makes a great impact. She wasn't, she's only mentioned a little bit in Scripture. The little bit she's mentioned, she has a very, very strong and important, though destructive, impact on the life of the people of God. So this person in Thyatira is compared to this Old Testament figure named, named Jezebel, who you can read about in 1 Kings 16 um, and 2 Kings 9. Basically, Jezebel was a foreigner, and she married into the people of God. And from this position, she married Ahab, the king of Israel, in the northern kingdom. Again, she's an outsider, marries into the people of God, takes up a prominent position, and from that prominent position begins to lead the people of God astray. She poisoned her husband, and she poisoned the people of Israel with seductive lies. Now, I'm not letting Ahab off the hook. He was a weak man. He's fully responsible for the things that he did. But this is who Jezebel was. She was a murderer of God's people. She murdered the prophets. She tried to kill Elijah. She murdered Naboth. Remember, Ahab wanted some field to do something with and complained, oh, Naboth won't sell it to me. And Jezebel comes in, shut up, quit your wine, and I'll take care of it. She makes sure that he gets killed. There, now go get your field. Didn't cost you anything. Let's go take it. This is who Jezebel was. This is the Old Testament antecedent to this New Testament individual. And so the Jezebel of Thyatira, probably not her real name, I suppose it could be, but probably just some individual in the church who they are referring to back as Jezebel. And she sneaks in as a prophetess who reveals the secrets of God. That's what a prophet would do. Be hearing from the voice of God. Hearing from God and then communicating that word to the people of God. And so she sneaks into the church, um, claims to be a prophetess, claims to have secret revelation from God, and in doing so is actually not calling the people to draw close to God but actually telling the people to remove themselves from God. She seduces them actually and enslaves them in sin. All in the name of Christ. All in the name of the God of Heaven. We don't know exactly what she taught. And this is where we're 
I'll take a little license here and uh, give you a what I think would make the most sense. Because what did she teach them? She taught them to practice immorality and idolatry. So more likely than not, she was advocating membership in these trade guilds and their unholy practices. It's okay. God doesn't care if you go ahead and participate in those deeds. God does not really care. It's okay. I got a, I got a direct line to God, and it is okay. And God would have you go and participate in paganism and the immorality that comes about through being part of one of these trade guilds. Perhaps she is exploiting the commercial prosperity of such an alliance. After all, if they prosper, so does she. Regardless, she is enslaving the people of God to idolatry and sexual immorality. And by the way, in, in Scripture, adultery is both physical and spiritual, is it not? It is abandoning the one you love and engaging in an unholy relationship. And to align yourself with any pagan deity would be spiritual adultery. It would be idolatry. And God calls that adultery. Jesus says, I gave her time to repent. <coughs> and that she does not want to repent. What this means exactly? Well, I gave her time to repent. Perhaps this was some sort of church discipline. I think that would be fair to assume. And, and remember, the church discipline can come through a lot of different means. There's what we might call a, a uh, maybe a more passive church discipline, which would come about through the hearing of God's word. I think every time we get up and proclaim the word of God, there is a, we might call this formative discipline, that you are being formed by God's Word, and maybe I say something, or maybe another Bible study, or one of the songs that we sing that has Scripture, or a prayer that we say that is scripturally based, and the conviction says, oh, I need to get that right in my life. You know, and just through the preaching of God's Word, and the proclamation of God's Word, this is formative discipline. There's also what we might call corrective, or active church discipline, and this is something we would see outlined, of course, in Matthew chapter 18 or 1 Corinthians 5, where there is this formal, active idea of calling a person and demonstrating that their actions are contrary to the Word of God and that they need to repent in turn from their sins. And Jesus is saying, I gave her time to repent. Perhaps through some sort of church discipline. Maybe it's just through the act of preaching of God's word. Or perhaps the church has gone to her and said, listen, this isn't right. There's a refusal to repent. I think that refusal to repent is a sign of being unregenerate. That may be a harsh statement. But at least a persistent, ongoing refusal to repent. There are things in my life that, that, that I have done that, I, that, that maybe it wasn't, maybe somebody pointed out, and it wasn't really until a couple of years later that I saw, oh man, that really, you know, when they pointed out to me, I didn't see anything wrong with it. But as I grew in the Lord, I came to realize that I was wrong. And at that point, I needed to repent. Other things people have confronted me with, I know I need to repent of right, right then and there. I know they're wrong. But I think a persistent, outright refusal to repentance, a clear teaching of Scripture, would cause me to say, I don't know if there was ever new life in that person. I 
think that repentance is an indicator that you were born again. Because you love the things God loves and you hate the things God hates. And we have people who come and are... I won't go into that. But how do we behave when somebody calls us to repentance? What do we do? How do we ultimately respond when we're confronted with our sin? I want you to understand that repentance is not simply feeling bad. Paul talks about a sorrow of this world and a sorrow of the Lord. And the sorrow of the Lord returns, uh, results in repentance. And the sorrow of the world is leads to death, he says. It's just being sorry. Perhaps sorry you got caught. And repentance, repentance includes sorrow, but it is, does not end with sorrow. The times that I've been confronted with my sin, there is sorrow. But it goes beyond that. It goes into an amending of one's ways. It is turning away from that action and turning to God. Let me also say this. That repentance does not imply perfection in that particular area. Perhaps a person is confronted. You know, you've got a problem with gossip. And they say, man, you know what? The Lord's been revealing that to me. And I, I need to fix that. You're right. And I'm so sorry. And I need to repent of that. And they actually do. I'm going to trust in the Lord. I'm going to trust. But then they, two weeks later, they, they find themselves gossiping. But what do they do? They repent again. And, and they begin to grow in this area. They begin. So I, I'm not saying that once one person repents, you never ever you are going to be perfect in that particular area. You may continue to struggle with it, but you will live a life of repentance in that regard. I think you will take necessary steps to promote success in overcoming it also. Perhaps not putting yourself in a situation where, in this case, say gossip, is maybe you have a friend who just... That's what you've done for the past 20 years. You've gotten together and you've just discovered everybody's dirty laundry. And Maybe you'll say, I'm going to have to refrain from that relationship. Or perhaps you'll take other action. You know, I'm going to be part of a small group Bible study through the week. I'm going to immerse myself in God's Word. I'm going to do various things that promote a lifestyle that will demonstrate that I'm repentant. He says, repent. I gave her time to repent and she wouldn't. This is a person who needs to be thrown out of the church. She's poisoning the church. And I know that this is really unpopular, not only amongst church people, it certainly is unpopular in, in our culture. Probably the greatest sin a person could commit in our culture today is the sin of intolerance. And intolerance, by definition today, is that there are, that no, no idea or opinion is of any greater value than any other opinion or viewpoint. In other words, there are no superior views. There are no superior opinions. So in other words, if you say such and such is objectively a sin against God, that would be intolerant. Even if the Bible says do not steal, it's like, well, you know what? That's really a social construct, and you don't know. Maybe the person was starving, or maybe this, that, and the other, and so stealing in some situations is right for you to judge. My, my view on stealing is this, and I have equal right to my view of what stealing is. And no one view is better than another. That's a modern-day understanding of tolerance. The way I've always understood tolerance is that you and I may disagree, but we don't punch each other in the nose. We don't hate each other. We disagree. You may say, I think stealing is great. And I may say, well, oh, oh, Exodus 20 kind of says don't steal. And we may end up disagreeing on it. And in the end, we don't hate each other. I see you at Walmart. Hey, how's it going? I can't believe that guy thinks it's okay to steal. Hey, how's it going? 
Well, I wouldn't gossip and say that, but. But this is a person who needs to be judged. And needs to be put out of the church. Because she's poisoning the church. And Jesus even says, and he judges this person. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds, and I will kill her children with pestilence. Well, that's blunt. I'll throw her on a bed of sickness, I'll kill her children, and all those who follow her, I'll strike with pestilence. Both her and her followers are called to repent and face the judgment of Christ. Those who, are, those who repent are identified with Jesus, and those who refuse identify themselves with Jezebel. So the question here for the church is Jesus or Jezebel? Which one do you want? And Jesus' judgment here reminds me so much of Ananias and Sapphira, doesn't it? They lied to God, the Holy Spirit, and they were struck dead. It reminds me so much of Paul's admonition to the Corinthian church when they, when they took of the, the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And Paul even goes on and says, because of your sin, some people are sick and some of you even die. And so, repent. Not only you, Jezebel, or whoever this person is, but all of your disciples, those who follow you and your children. That is, I think this would be those who she's made disciples of. And look what Jesus says. So that the churches will know. I will kill her and I will kill her children. So that the churches will know. They will fear the Lord. That I'm not messing around. I am the one with feet blazing like burnished bronze and there is no alloy and there is no impurity and I have eyes like flames of fire I see secret things she claims to have secret knowledge I'm the one who has all knowledge I see all things and there is no pollution whatsoever I am the rightful king and I'm telling you you need to fix this and if you don't I will judge, and all the churches will know who I am, and they will know what it means to be right, and they will know the, the ramifications and the consequences of not heeding my word. This was so common in Israel, wasn't it? God would say, listen, this is what I want you to do, and if you don't, these are the curses that are going to come upon you. And then what does he say? So that the nations will know that I, the Lord, rule over Israel. Everybody's going to know I am the Lord. And they'll see you in destruction and will say, what happened? They abandoned God. That's what happened. Yahweh was their God. They abandoned him and worshipped false idols. And he just he devastated them. Jesus protects his church and Jesus protects all his churches. He's serious about his church. And then he goes on and he says, but I say to the rest, who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them. I place no other burden on you. And I, and I wrestled a little bit with this idea that I place no other burden on you. At first I, I kind of thought, oh, it's just, um, just go about your business. I don't think that's exactly what it is. I place no other burden on you. So that means you place some sort of responsibility on them. Beyond that one responsibility or that single responsibility, he placed no other responsibility or no other burden. What was the burden that he placed upon? Kick her out. Get rid of her. Other than that, I place no other burden on you. Those of you who are not following her, the only thing I have to say is get rid of this, this individual. Other than that, I've got no other burden to place, no other responsibility to place upon you. Stop tolerating her. That's the one burden you have. Stop tolerating her. That's what I said at the very beginning. 
I know your deeds and all these good things. I have this one thing against you. You tolerate this woman Jezebel, and I place no other burden on you. Get rid of it. Stop tolerating her. That's the burden. That's the responsibility. I think that it plays out in get rid of her. Since she won't repent, she's been given time to repent. That's number one. Folks, when we're walking in error, our goal is to restore a person. And all church discipline is restorative. But if not, stop tolerating it. And hold fast to what you have, Jesus says. Well, what do they have? We've learned what they have. They have love and faith and service and perseverance. They have the gospel of Jesus Christ and they have the faith of Jesus. They have faith in Christ. They have the love of Christ and they're exercising it. Hold on to that. There's no other burden. Kick out the false teacher and hold on to the gospel that you have. That's what I want you to do, Thyatirans. My yoke is easy and my burden is light, says the Lord. And John tells us that the law of the Lord is not cumbersome, it's not burdensome. Doing what God has called us to do is not a burden. And then he gives and makes a promise. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. What does that have to do? That comes straight out of Psalm 2. That's a direct quote out of Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, basically, authority, the nations are raging against God and His anointed one. The nations rage against God and His Son, and I love it. God sits in heaven and laughs, mocks them, derides them for coming against me and my Son. And the Father says, I've given all authority to my anointed one, my Son, and He will rule over all of the nations, even those who mock Him. He is the ruler and authority over all of them, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. And those who don't bow before Him, He will crush them. The one who overcomes, the one who conquers, that is, the one who holds fast to the Gospel and removes the false teachers. I will give you the authority of the nation. No, you will rule with Jesus Christ the Lord. That's, that's the promise. You will rule with me. This is a promise to reign with the very Son of God. And then finally says, and I'll give you the morning star. I won't go into great detail here. Because it's simple. In Revelation chapter 22, 16, Jesus is the morning star. Here's what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you my son. If you conquer, you will have my son. And I started reflecting on this because I've been saying this now. I think this is the fourth week. It seems like all the promises have to do with gaining the son. The greatest promise that God can give us is his son. Too often times we're thinking, oh man, if I had three wishes from God, I would have, you know, a new car and a new house and something else, a new boat. The most precious thing that you can attain from God if He has a gift to give is a vital, living, growing, eternal, joyful relationship with His Son Jesus Christ. That is the highest gift you can ever have. And we should seek to attain the Son of God more than anything else. We should spend more time developing the joyful treasure of Jesus Christ as Lord than anything else. Because this is what God promises. He doesn't promise you a new house. Some of these people are going to get suffering. Some of them say, hey, you're deaf. I'm not even going to deliver you out of these things. But when you're done, you will have my son. And that one hour of suffering, or that ten minutes of suffering, that flame that burns for an hour, as Polycarp said, is nothing. Because you will obtain Jesus Christ forever. It's the most precious thing that God will ever give us. 
And so for you who overcome, you will reign with my son. You will have the morning star, Jesus Christ, my one and only son who died for your sins. Oh, I pray that we would treasure the Son of God above all things. I pray that I would treasure Jesus above all things. There have been times in my life, maybe times this week, where I have not treasured Christ as I ought to have. And perhaps I wanted something else. And I'm growing like you. I'm in that same process of sanctification. I'm learning also. I have not arrived yet. But I believe I am growing. I hope you are. And I pray that soon, one day, I can say I love Jesus more than I did ten days ago. I love Jesus more than I did a year ago. I love Jesus more than I did yesterday. I pray you'll follow in that. That we as a church love Jesus more than anything. Because the book of Revelation is about Jesus. That's what it's about. There's a whole lot of other stuff there. Maybe even important stuff. But if we walk away with an exalted view of Christ, we think we've done well in our study of the book of Revelation. So I'll conclude with this. Jesus is the pure Davidic king who knows the secrets of our hearts. His eyes look deep into us and he knows the secret things. He purges his church, he purges his people. And he's calling us to himself. Jesus says, I am your reward. I am the treasure. When you learn to treasure me above all things, then you will be truly wealthy. I also want you to know that we are seeing that Jesus reveals himself completely and truly. You need not wonder. I wonder what Jesus was, is like. Oh, one day we'll know completely. But now he's given us his word. And he's given us his spirit so that we can understand his word and we can have a complete understanding of who he is. We don't need secret knowledge. We don't need some new revelation. We have the word of God. We have the Holy Spirit. We need to follow the Jesus that has already been revealed to us. And in doing so, we will find a joy that outstrips all joys. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you have blessed us and kept us.